This is Matthew chapter 5, and uh, if you are just joining us this morning, I'll catch you up after we read our text. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, um, we're going to read Matthew 5, 21 through 26. <clears throat> it says this, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come Come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Lord, as we come to your word, um, God, I don't stand over it. Um, God, I stand behind it. Uh, I pray that all of us would posture our hearts under it. God, we are not the authority. Our feelings are not the authority. This culture is not the authority. Um, God, your word is truth, and it is timeless, and it will eternally be true. Um, so God, help us um, to live by it. God, I pray that it would move in our hearts, uh, that the same spirit that wrote this incredible scripture um, lives in us if we're in Christ. God, to help us interpret it and see you in it and to live by it um, gives us the strength to obey it. So God, help us to um, to see your word for what it is, to see the gospel in this text, um, that it would breathe among us this morning and that we would live and treat one another according to what it says. God, I pray um, that we would come to know and love and cherish your word. Um, God, that the things that we used to love before we knew your grace would become sour to us and the things that used to be sour to us would be sweet in your word. So help us, um, change us, teach us in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, over Christmas break, uh, some friends of ours gave us a gift card uh, to go check out the uh, Highlander place on the square. Anybody ever been there? We went to the Highlander, pretty cool place. Uh, we enjoyed it. And uh, we had never been there before together, at least my wife and I, and uh, we were given a gift card to go. So we planned a date night and uh, got the date on the calendar. It was a few weeks back. It was a Thursday night. And uh, I forget the time. I think it was 630 or so. And uh, I'm here at work on a Thursday afternoon, kind of getting ready for Sunday, deep in the studies and look up and it's 625 on my phone. And uh, see that I've got a few missed text messages, and it's, hey, where are you? Have you left yet? Um, our reservation is at 6.30. So I'm like, all right, got to get my stuff, pack up really quick. And I grab, get in my car and take off to the Highlander and get there and uh, run inside and uh, tell the lady, hey, we have a reservation, get to my table. And Elizabeth is not there. And I'm going, okay, maybe she was in her car thinking that, you know, she's going to see me come in and meet me in there. So I text her, hey, I got a table, I'm in the back, and she calls me immediately and says, babe, it's date night, I'm at home, you're supposed to come get me. And, uh, and I mean, we've been married for two months at this point, and I'm already like, just, just botched date night, like completely, completely botched it, like was assuming a lot of things, all of the stuff, you know how it is. And uh, I'm sitting there at a restaurant and it's like the long, cold winter, just waiting for her to show up and wondering like what the mood's going to be and all those kind of things. And uh, she was, to her credit, she was like super gracious and kind and all those kind of things and probably just used to it at this point. Um, and uh, I say all that to say, when things get misinterpreted, there are consequences. 
when messages get interpreted, when communication gets interpreted between spouses, between parents and children, between your boss, coworkers, like when things get misinterpreted, there are always consequences. And I bring that up because we are going to, I mean, that's the, the environment that we're reading Matthew chapter five in was the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had completely misinterpreted the Old Testament law. In fact, they had a really low view of it because they thought they needed to add a bunch of things to it. They thought that they were rightly obeying it and they were totally focused, completely focused on the externals. They were only focused on what it looked like on the outside, on their reputation in the community, on how they looked to other people, outward, external, works of the hands, you know, phrases of the mouth, what people could see on the outside. And the problem with that is the Old Testament law has always been about the heart, always. Over and over again, God was after our hearts. Even the outward signs of the Old Testament, like circumcision, was a sign pointing to what God was doing in our hearts. In fact, in Isaiah or Jeremiah, he talks about how one day um, God will cast out those that are circumcised only in the flesh, that he was looking for people who would be cut to the heart by his grace and his mercy and his love. Um, In Hosea, he talks about, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Joel, he says, render your hearts to me, not your garments. Um, In Micah 6, you probably know Micah 6, 8, he says, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy to walk humbly, like all of these inward heart level attitudes. And then Jesus gives us, or God of the old, God, Yahweh gives us all of these other outward signs and commands and to do's that were to be an expression of what was going on in our hearts. We see this in the 10 commandments, Exodus 20, God gives 10 commandments to his people. Uh, But before he gives us any of the 10 things to do, what does he say in Exodus 19? that you're my chosen people, that I've redeemed you, that I saved you, that I love you. And even out of the 10 commandments, the first four are directed at our hearts, that we wouldn't have any idols in our hearts, that we wouldn't um, have any other gods but the one true God of the universe and all of those things. He has always been after the heart, but this Old Testament law has been misinterpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they have made it all about the externals, all of it what you do, where you go, what you wear, what you say, how you look to the community and the people around you. And they were so focused on the externals. And the problem with that is, is you either are left with one or two options. If that's your standard, this perfect external righteousness, you either have to fake it and lie and cover things up to make it look like you're righteous and look down on the people that can't keep it together, right? They can't show up and look like their family's great and everything's good and we never fight and everything's just awesome. You either have to fake it and deal with this internal struggle within you, or you're like the younger brother and the prodigal son who realizes that they're just crushed by this standard and they leave. They're like, I can't do this. There's no way I can keep any of these things. And this was the scenario that we find ourselves in in the first century. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees had done to the Old Testament law. And Jesus shows up on the scene and preaches this incredible sermon that we've been walking through. And every single issue has been about your heart because he's always been about your heart, every single one. And Jesus will talk about all of these different issues and he'll get to the heart of the matter. He'll say, there's a way to give that's external and outward and all of those things, but there's a way to give that's received the grace of God in your heart and um, doesn't care that other people see you give and all those kind of things. There's a way to pray that's external and all about the outward righteousness. And then there's a way to pray 
like a person who's truly received the grace of God and his mercy and you can pray in your closet inwardly because you don't need anything from the external world, from other people's perceptions or opinions through your prayers. You have direct line to God. You have intimacy with God and you can pray like someone who's been saved and changed by the grace of God. He just goes into each of these different things. In fact, he starts the sermon. Verses one through 12 of Matthew five, if you're just joining us this morning, um, he talks about the inward postures of the heart a true follower of Jesus, this is their heart. Someone who's poor in spirit, that we realize and we know that spiritually before God, we offer nothing, right? We don't bring anything good to the table. We bring our sin, we bring our wretchedness, um, our righteousness, as the Old Testament says, is like filthy rags, um, that we are bankrupt spiritually before God. And because we're poor in spirit, we mourn over our sin. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted, right? We mourn over the fact that we don't meet God's standard. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own. And let me just say this. This isn't just how we, the postures of our heart and how we act when we trust in Jesus. This is how we stay as believers. That every day we realize we're poor in spirit. That apart from Jesus, we can do nothing and that the only good in us is Christ in us and the Holy Spirit in us working through um, despite our flesh and despite our sin and despite our selfishness. It's not just the posture of the, the day or the time or the night that you receive Jesus, but this is the, the ongoing posture of a believer is we're poor in spirit, we mourn over our sin, we long and we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not our own and on and on he goes. And then he, so here's the heart posture of a believer. Here's who they are. And then when you get to verses 13 and through 16, he says, now here's what believers do. They're the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world, right? That as we proclaim this grace that we've received, as we proclaim the gospel that we've received, that God's means to create a hunger and a thirst for him is through the gospel that we preach and through the way that we love people and care for people and shine a light like John the Baptist. He wasn't the true light, but he was a light and he bore witness about Jesus, the true light. And Jesus says that as we live this way, that people will see our good deeds and they'll glorify our father in heaven. So here's who they are, verses one through 12. Here's what we do. We live as salt of the earth and light of the world. And now Jesus, um, as we talked about last week, addresses the number one question that anybody would have been asking. Because Jesus showed up on the scene, God literally opened the heavens and says, this is my son. He's talking about this kingdom, um, Christianity. Christians in the first century were called followers of the way. And everyone is wondering, okay, is this new thing? Is this um, king? Is this kingdom that he's proclaiming? Is this way that we're following? Is it a departure from the Old Testament? Are we throwing it out? Is this a new thing? Is this a different thing? And Jesus doubles down on the law and says, no, 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 we're not throwing it out. In fact, this is the actual true fulfillment of the law. This is what the law was intended to be. That all of the shadows in the Old Testament of kings and priests and sacrifices and lambs and Moses and David and all of those things, Jesus is the true fulfillment of those things that he's the greater David, he's the greater king, he's the greater Moses, he's the greater sacrifice, he's the greater lamb, all of those things. This is actually the true fulfillment of the Old Testament law. So no, we're not throwing it out. In fact, I'm going to rightly interpret the Old Testament law for you. I'm going to give you what it was originally designed to be. And it wasn't about the externals, it's always been about the heart. And Jesus is going to get to our heart and what he's gonna do is he's going to take um, these different topics. He's gonna mention murder, um, adultery, love, 
resentment, like all these different things over the next six weeks, and he's going to get to the heart level of each of those because they have been wrongly interpreted. And with misinterpretation comes um, lots of hurt and anger and all those kind of things. But he's going to get us back to the original and the heart of the law, not the letter of the law, but what it was originally designed to be. And here's how we know. Let me just give you a few examples of how Jesus wasn't throwing out the law. Um, because if you, Jesus himself, New Testament, walking here, God in flesh on earth, people come up to him and say, hey, leader of this movement, leader of the way, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't give them a new thing. He doesn't give them, you know, a truth that we've never heard before. What does he give them? He gives them the law. He gives them the Old Testament. That if you were to obey the Old Testament law as it was originally designed to be, and you would do it perfectly, that you would inherit eternal life. The rich young ruler, many of you are probably familiar with this story. This is Jesus's response to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verse 17. It says to this, it says, and he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Hey, you want eternal life? He doesn't say there's this new way we're doing things now. That's gone. What does he say? No, he, he upholds the law. Hey, keep these commandments perfectly and you will live. This lawyer, in fact, in Luke chapter 10, before Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, all of that starts with this lawyer coming up to him and saying, trying to test him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And look at Jesus's response in Luke 10. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, this is Jesus's response, not a new thing, not something out of left field. What does he say? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Jesus was not this new legislator bringing this new teaching. In fact, he was the fulfillment. He was the word made flesh. He was bringing us to the original intent of the law and he would fulfill it for us perfectly. But Jesus says, hey, if you could love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, um, this is the summary of the law. This is it. If you could just do those things, this was the original intent of the law. This is what it was designed to do. Not focus on externals, but to create in you a love for God and a love for the people made in his image, a love for your neighbor. You wanna obey the Old Testament law? That's what you do. And if you can do that perfectly, you have earned eternal life. As we talked about last week, the problem was never with the law. The problem was the sin in us, right? We can try and try and try to obey the law. The law's not bad. The law just exposes our sin. The more we try to obey it, the more we realize that we can't. And it's not the law's fault, it's our fault. It's the sin in us. And Paul talks about in Romans how the law's not bad, the law's not sinful. In fact, the law exposes our sin, but it shows us God's perfect and righteous and holy standard. And in Romans 8, Paul says that Jesus came to do what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. Problem wasn't the law, the problem was our flesh. Right? When you have God's perfect standard and you put sinful man trying to meet it, it gets weak, right? It can't uphold God's standard. And it's the sin in us. So Jesus came to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But the original intent of the law was always to create this inward love for God and love for the people that he's made. I'm gonna skip down to Matthew 22. Um, but it says this. This is Jesus talking. Um, 
In just a second, it says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You want to obey the Old Testament? This is what it was designed to do. Not to create external righteousness, not to fake it till you make it, not worried about the externals. If you get the internal right, a love for God and a love for your neighbor, the externals will follow. But the law had been misinterpreted. So Jesus is about to give us over the next six weeks these six different kind of topics and get back to the heart of the matter. Get back to the original intent of the law. What he's gonna do is he's gonna deconstruct what the Pharisees and the scribes had taught. He's gonna say, you've heard it said. And then he's going to reconstruct what the original intent in the heart of the law was for us. So he's not throwing it out. He's not doing something. He's, he's giving us the original intent and he's upholding the law. So today he's gonna talk about murder. And you might be in here and be like, awesome. I haven't murdered anybody in a while. Uh, I get to skirt by this sermon. I'm good, right? No, um, none of us uh, are going to enjoy what Jesus has to say because he gets right at our hearts. And um, it, it's, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And we're all going to see the original intent and the standard of the law. And we need to see this. This is good and right for us to do. And there's gospel grace for us um, in our midst. So let me read it to you. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, let me just say this. Jesus, starting this phrase with, you have heard it said, but I say, he's about to do this for the next six times. No rabbi in the first century would have ever done this. Hey, you've heard the Old Testament say this. You've heard the scribes and the Pharisees and all the elites say this, but I say this. Jesus was establishing himself as an authority, as the fulfillment of the law, you've heard it this way, and he's gonna deconstruct what they've heard, and then he's gonna say, but I tell you this, I'm the faithful interpreter of the law. I am the law, the word made flesh. This is what it was designed to be. You've heard it this way, but I'm gonna get you back to the heart of the matter. This was the original intent. He's gonna deconstruct and then reconstruct to the point where at the end of the sermon, the last sentence is they were all marveled at the authority with which he spoke, right? because he showed up and he's the authority, he's the standard, he's the faithful interpreter of the law. So he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment and the Pharisees would be like, check, righteous, right? Never murdered anybody. Look at me, I'm keeping the law. And you can see how they were so deceptive and manipulative and controlling to make people believe that they could actually uphold God's law. Look at me, haven't murdered anybody. Then he says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his, with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, let me say this. Your translation may say um, without cause in there. I don't know what translation you're reading. I'm in the ESV. Mine doesn't have that in there. Um, a few centuries after the original manuscript, some interpreters put in that phrase without cause. Um, the intent behind that was a good intent, um, but... Adding to scripture was not a good result. And I say that because um, there's a temptation for us to read this and to think that all anger is sinful. And I wanna be clear 
that Jesus is not saying that all anger is sinful. In fact, in the epistles, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, God has righteous and just and holy and pure anger and wrath towards sin. Um, that God gets angry at sin and brokenness in the world and injustice and all of those kind of things, that God is perfectly righteous and right to be angry at sin. So he's not just, because God gets angry, he's not just saying if you're angry, you're, you're sinning. Uh, we see Jesus in the New Testament um, flip tables, right? And I don't, I can't like have a word picture. I can't even think in my head what it looks like for Jesus who was perfectly in tune with the spirit, who was always exhibiting the fruits of the spirit to be, um, to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Like when I think anger, I think losing control. I think lashing out. I think saying things that I don't mean. I can't imagine what it was like for Jesus to gently or like lovingly throw some tables, but Jesus always walked in step with the spirit and he was righteously angry that the people had turned the place of worship into a shopping mall, essentially. And he was angry, he had every, or he was angry, he had every right to be angry and still without losing control, without not being loving and um, joyful and peaceful and all those things, he came in and started throwing tables over. And I don't know how he did that because I've never seen someone be perfectly angry before, but Jesus did that. So he's not condemning all anger. And that's why interpreters wanted to put without cause in there because he's talking about a specific kind of anger. And we can see that from the context. We don't need to add to scripture to know that. But Jesus is talking about a specific kind of anger. He's not talking about what Martin Luther called the anger of love, uh, which is God's anger, which is one that wishes no one evil, one that is friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. He's talking about this, this envy, this jealousy, this bitterness, this hatred, this malice towards a brother or sister in Christ. That's what he's talking about here not a righteous and holy and just anger at the brokenness in this world, but the anger that we have towards one another. The bitterness, the silent treatment, the attitude, the tone, that kind of anger. And he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, right? It's not just the outward, the external. There was no court of law in the first century that would condemn you for anger, but there is a court that we will all face one day and we will be accountable for not just our deeds, but for the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And Jesus says, if you look at someone with anger, with malice, with envy, with bitterness, then you will be liable to judgment. And he's gonna tell us why. And as we look at this kind of anger, um, if you're like me, you probably think of kind of the out of control, you know, lots of, movement going on, kind of anger, big volume, all that kind of stuff. Um, but as I was reading this week, I want to share with you um, what one of the authors that I was reading said about anger, because there's different types of anger. And to welcome us all into the conversation, I want to share uh, the different kinds of anger um, so that we'll all know that this message is directed for all of us. Um, the first one is covert anger. Um, this author that I was reading says there's three types of anger. The first one's covert anger, right? This is um, disguised anger, right? Anger hidden um, in sarcasm, anger hidden in humor, you know, where we're mad at someone and we really wanna drop them down a peg so we say something mean to them or say something about them and then we slap on like, I'm just kidding or I'm just messing with you, right? When we really like twisted the knife a little bit and we think a, a just kidding will kind of smooth it over. 
and they won't be offended, all those kind of things, right? It's sarcasm, it's anger hidden in humor, um, grumbling, complaining, gossiping, smoldering, being irritable, rolling your eyes, like that kind of anger, like hidden, covert anger in disguise, right? And if that doesn't bring you into the conversation yet, then there's this cold anger, uh, which is the silent treatment, withdrawal, the cold shoulder, controlling, manipulating, keeping score, criticizing, on and on and on. Just to kind of keep to yourself internal, let it fester, cold anger. Um, not the covert, disguised anger and humor, but just like, just let it fester inside. And then there's the hot anger, right? Which is jealousy, wrath, quarreling, exploding, lots of volume, raising your voice, throwing, breaking, all the things, right? But there's all different kinds of anger. And what Jesus is getting at here is not the externals. He's getting at the heart because when we use these things, when we do these things, we demean and we belittle people made in the image of God in our hearts. Like you have to make that decision in your heart first before it comes out in your hands. You have to. Think about it. When you are sarcastic with somebody, what are you essentially saying? Is I'm gonna say something really simple and really you know, straightforward with some tone on it because I'm up here intellectually and you're down here, I'm smart and you're dumb and I'm gonna make this easy for you to understand to a point where it offends you a little bit, right? We stand up in our pride, we look down on other people and we say something sarcastic like, hey, I'm gonna put this on your level for you until you get on mine. Do you see what we have to get to, the place in our hearts that we have to get to before we are sarcastic with someone? That's just one example. Um, when you think about gossiping, what are we essentially doing when we gossip? We're saying, I'm the judge and I've already made a verdict about you and I'm gonna go around and make sure that everyone else comes to the same verdict about you that I've made about you because I know what's right and I know who you are and I know your intentions and I'm gonna go ahead and make a judgment about you and then I'm gonna go around and make sure that everyone behind you knows the same verdict and comes to the same conclusion about you. Like, do you see where we have to get in our hearts before that comes out in our hands and our mouths? We have to get to this place of, of evil, of anger, of hatred, of malice, of bitterness in our hearts towards someone before we go and do these things. Withdrawal and silence, what does that essentially say? It says, you aren't worthy of my forgiveness until you come and ask for it or beg for it, right? I'm gonna be over here and I'm the offended and you're not worthy of my forgiveness until you come and start asking for it and begging for it. You see where we have to get this elevated place in our hearts? Indifference says, you're no longer even worthy of me to care about, right? I'm just gonna be indifferent. I'm gonna check out and you're not even worth me caring about or fighting for. Envy says, I want what you have and I resent you for having it, right? To be envious of someone, it's not just I want what you have, but it's I resent you for having that thing. Like, do you see where we have to get in our hearts? Jealousy takes it a step further and says, I deserve what you have. And you don't deserve to have that thing. Like the judgments we have to make in our hearts, the place we have to go in our hearts before we do these things. And here's what I want to, to kind of level set the room with is you don't have to be angry outwardly. Like it doesn't have to come out of your mouth for it to be anger and hatred according to scripture, right? You can hate someone in the privacy of your own thoughts, can't you? We all can that it doesn't have to come out. And that's what Jesus is getting at. The standard was, hey, I haven't killed anybody yet. 
And Jesus is saying, no, no, you completely missed the standard. You've completely missed the original intent. The original intent was the thoughts and the meditations of your heart. And if anger is in your heart, anger will have your heart. And anger will come out eventually. It will assert itself in some way. Um, Jesus talks about this in Luke 6. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Jesus is saying, hey, this seed of anger, this seed of hatred, of malice, it has to exist in your heart before it comes out of your mouth or in your behavior. Because we speak and we do what comes out of our hearts. So Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. And then he says this at the end of verse uh, 22 of chapter five, he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that's a strong statement. And he gives us these two words. And he says, whoever insults his brother, uh, the word there in the Greek is the word raka. It essentially just means like calling someone dumb, um, empty headed. Uh, my fraternity brothers in college used to call people waterheads, just meant like there's no brain in there. It's just water sloshing around. Um, but it's, just, it's, it's kind of a term that just calls someone dumb intellectually. So he says, whoever insults or calls someone dumb to his brother, look at what he says that will be liable to the council. Like, look what you have to do in your heart before you go and declare someone, hey, I'm up here, you're down here. And then he says this, and whoever says you fool, and that word in the Greek is more, um, there's also an ending of that word, uh, which is O-N, where we get our English word moron from. Um, but he's talking about here, not our English definition of the word moron. Um, he's talking about kind of a, a heart level foolishness like turning away from God into other things, where the first one is like, um, hey, you belittle someone with their intelligence. The other one is you, you belittle them in their heart. Like, hey, you're not seeking after the Lord. You're, and Jesus actually uses this term for the scribes and the Pharisees. He uses this term for his disciples when they are being foolish and turning to other things in their hearts. So he's talking about one's directed at the head, one's directed at the heart. But then he says this, whoever says that will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that's a strong statement. But what is Jesus getting at? That every single one of us, we will stand before a judge, not an earthly judge one day, we will stand before a council, a judge, and we will not just be held accountable for our outward actions like the Pharisees were teaching. But you and I, we will have to answer for the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And our hearts are wicked, and we look at people with malice and with envy and jealousy and rage, and we belittle people. And Jesus is saying, every single one of us, according to this standard, we are deserving of judgment. And rightfully so, God would be completely just to send us to the fire of hell. He would, because we have not loved him with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We haven't. We belittle our neighbors, we gossip to our neighbors, we resent our neighbors, all of those things. James says this in chapter three. Um, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. With our mouths, we bless God, and with it, we go and curse the people made in his image, made in his likeness. And James says, this ought not to be. 
just as a physical murder makes you liable to a human earthly counsel, this spiritual anger and murder that we commit in our hearts, we will be liable to an eternal right and just and good counsel of God one day when we stand before him. And we are all guilty. We're condemned. And here's what Jesus is getting at. The, the way to live according to the kingdom, the way to live as a disciple, the standard is not just that we don't kill each other, right? The thing that we love about heaven one day is not just that we're not gonna murder each other, right? It's that there won't be any anger or hatred or malice or envy towards one another. That's what's beautiful about the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying and why he's preaching this now is we don't have to wait for the end times to experience the kingdom here on this earth. We've been bought at a price. We've been given the Holy Spirit that you and I as believers, we can start experiencing the kingdom right here on this earth. This is the way to live as part of the kingdom. Not that we wait till then, but that we, we love one another and serve one another and care for one another now. It's so much more than not murdering each other. And in light of that, Jesus is gonna give us two scenarios, two examples. He's gonna just jump right into the application of the sermon. Here's what we do in light of these things. And he starts in verse 23. I wanna show you, he says, so if you're, so, so scenario, hypothetical. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is giving a very culturally relevant example, but let me give you kind of the 2022 version of this. Jesus is essentially saying, if you're in church in the middle of a song, your hands are raised, you're worshiping, and suddenly you remember that somebody has a grievance against you, that you've offended somebody, then leave your spot Leave the worship service and go out and call, text, find, do whatever you have to do with, to make it right with your brother. First, go and reconcile with the people who are made in the image of God before you show up and you lift your hands and you worship. That's essentially what Jesus was teaching. And he takes the inward sins of our heart that seriously. And he's doing the same thing he's going to continue to do in this sermon. Jesus is saying true worship is not outward externals. True worship, worship is a heart that has been changed by the grace of God, who loves God and loves his neighbor. One is the symbol and one is the substance, right? This ring that I'm wearing is a symbol of love, but it is not the substance of a marriage, is it? I would rather, and this is what Jesus was saying, I would rather you lose the symbol and actually have the substance than to have the symbol without the substance. So if you're at the altar and you're giving your sacrifice before the Lord and you're going through the symbols and you don't have the substance and the substance is a genuine love for God and a genuine love for your neighbor, then leave your sacrifice, leave the symbol at the altar and go and do what was true obedience to God's law which is to love God and to become right with your neighbor. And it makes complete sense to us, doesn't it? It would make zero sense for me to belittle and to degrade somebody made in the image of God and then to walk in here on a Sunday morning and worship the face of God. And Jesus is saying, hey, forget the symbols. Drop the symbols. If you know that you've hurt someone, that you've offended someone, that someone has a grievance against you, drop the externals and go and do what the law requires. Go make it right with someone. Go start the conversation. Go own your part of the issue. 
but don't degrade people made in my image. And then show up and try to worship and, and sing to the face of God. You're missing the substance. You've got the symbol without all the substance. I don't want your outward motions. I want your heart's affections. My brother is a server at Majestic Grill. Um, he's been working there for nine or 10 years now, I think. Um, he's been there for a long time. He's a waiter down there. And um, he is a believer, actually getting into ministry and all that stuff now, and um, has been trying to be salt and light in a really cool place in culture, downtown, lots of folks, lots of beliefs, all those kind of things. He's down there. He's trying to be salt and light at this restaurant on Main Street downtown. And he says, by far, the number one shift you don't want at Majestic Grill is Sunday lunch. As he goes and tries to minister and talk to the people, the, the shift that everyone avoids like the plague, that they try to exchange, that they try to give up is Sunday lunch. And every unbeliever that he talks to, and he's trying to be a light and witness and be salt of the earth and light of the world and all those kind of things, say, yeah, but the Christians, they're impatient and they're rude and they don't tip well. And I don't say that to condemn you, but I'm, I say that to illustrate the point, right? It's one thing for us to show up and go through all the symbols and to not have the substance as soon as we leave here. Jesus is getting us back to the substance. You want true obedience to the law? What does it look like? Not all the externals. It looks like a genuine love for God and a genuine love for the people who have been made in his image. And what's so crazy about this illustration was the only temple that you would make a sacrifice to at the altar was in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in Galilee talking to Galileans. So what he's saying here is, hey, if you walk 36 miles to Jerusalem and you are putting your sacrifice at the altar and meanwhile you remember that a brother or sister in Christ has something against you, leave the symbol there and go and do the substance. Walk 36 miles back and reconcile with your brother. Get back to the heart and the obedience of the law, what it was intended to do, and then come back 80 miles later and give me your sacrifice. I don't want the symbol, I want the substance. You see that? Out of the same mouth, Come blessing to God and cursing people made in his image. And brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Look at verse 25. He says, come, here's our second scenario. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. So the first one was kind of a spiritual example as you're worshiping, right? Leave your sacrifice, leave the symbol, go and do the substance, go and do what the law required. Romans 12 talks about, this is our genuine worship, right? That we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not that we do all the externals, but we love God with all that we have and we love the people made in his image. This is your true and proper worship. So the first example is about as you're worshiping, the other one's just a general rule for us as we live. And here's what I want you to see. Notice he says, you're accuser. In both of these examples, we're the one who has wronged someone. Jesus says, when you remember that your brother has something against you in the first example, and now he says that you're accuser, right? In both of these examples, we're the one who's wronged somebody. And why does he do that? Probably lots of reasons. His ways are higher than mine. I'm just gonna give you one guess because it's it's tempting to hear a sermon like this, to read a text like this, and to read it for somebody else, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Parker, I wish my mom was here. 
right? I wish my spouse was here. I wish my teens were here. Whatever it is, right? It's easy to read this and to think and read it for somebody else. But Jesus is not after their heart. He's after your heart. He wants you to internalize this, to think about this. The Holy Spirit wants to do some work in all of us this morning. And he wants you to read this for you, not for somebody else. But he says, when you remember your brother has something against you, and when your accuser comes, and also because there are some parts of reality and relationships that you and I just can't control. And as you remember that you've hurt somebody, as Paul says um, in Romans, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. That as you remember that you've done something to hurt someone, that the way you, the tone you used, the thing you said, the way you didn't respect them or didn't communicate, whatever it is, that as far as it depends on you, that you would go and make it right. And in fact, in this example, you see the urgency, right? Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'd be put in prison. So Jesus is saying, hey, as believers, this is the way of the kingdom. Kingdom people, people who have been saved by the grace of God, we don't do this, ah, they'll get over it. It's not the way of the kingdom. We don't say, hey, they'll tough, you know, just give them a few minutes to cool down and they'll be fine. No, the way of the kingdom, those people who realize that God has gone to great lengths to reconcile us to himself, when we know that we've hurt someone with our tone, with our words, with our attitude, with our absence, whatever it is, as soon as we know, biblically, we make haste to go and make it right, as far as it depends on us. We do what we have to do. We say what we have to say to own it, to recognize it, and to apologize for it. But kingdom living is not this, yeah, they'll be fine. They're tough. They'll get over it. Yeah, I know it hurt, but oh well, right? It'll happen again. No, that is not the way of the kingdom. That's not the original intent of the law. It's that you and I would be brothers and sisters in Christ who are quick to run to one another. When we hurt one another, when we disrespect one another, when we belittle one another intentionally or accidentally, but we run to each other quickly. And the good news about this is this is what we want in our relationships, right? I mean, think about how much better our relationships would be. This isn't God trying to just, you know, be a fun sucker and hey, this is how you're gonna do things from now on. This is actually the best way to live, isn't it? How much more honest and open and intimate would your relationships be if this was the standard? Like as soon as I think I've hurt someone, I go and make sure that I make it right. And then we talk about it and we deal with it. We bring it to the surface quickly. We don't let things fester. But like as soon as I sense some kind of disunity, some kind of offense that I do, as far as it depends on me, I run and I go and try to make it right. Like how much better would our relationships be if this was our standard operating procedure? This is the way of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Theoretically, as he says here, that believers, we shouldn't need mediaries and judiciaries and all these kind of people to intervene in our affairs, right? And Jesus says, hey, it's quick. It's, it's better for you to quickly resolve those things because if you get other people involved, it'll last a lot longer. Things that you never meant to say will get said, right? If you, we let things fester and let things wait, things just get worse. It costs you more money. It costs you more time. It costs you more hit to your relationships. But as followers of the way, as people who have been brought into the kingdom, as people who are poor in spirit, broken over our sin, long for God's righteousness, that as we, as soon as we sense that we've offended someone, that we go and we make it right. 
That's the standard. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And as we go and do all of these things, if other people got to get involved, if someone has to literally accuse us and get us involved, like there's jail, there's all those kind of things, there's payments, or we can be quick to run to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we've heard and not let issues get that far. We can run to one another, we can reconcile, we can be quick to forgive. As far as it depends on us, we can live at peace with each other. That's the way of the kingdom. And I know as I say all of this this morning, let me just be honest, this message was really hard to write because it required me to stop and text people and apologize for things and call people and set up lunches with people. And I got a lot of people I need to talk to before I lift my hands and show the symbols without the substance because the true substance is a genuine love for God and a genuine love as far as it depends on me with the people that he's made. It's just as painful for me as I can imagine it is for you. And I know a message like this lands in a lot of places. But the good news of the gospel is although we are all, let's just be honest, we are all utterly guilty of this standard and of this text. The good news of the gospel is that God, who justly and righteously accuses us, although he is our accuser and he is completely just to do that, he is also our counsel. He is also the judge himself. And he is also our substitute. And he has stood in our place and he has paid our fine and he has taken the accusations on himself. He was falsely accused and he has taken our punishment. God has gone through great lengths to reconcile us back to himself. We have offended the God of the universe with our sin, with our anger, with our envy, with our jealousy, with our rivalry. And God has gone through great lengths to reconcile us to himself. And when we remember that, when we dwell on that, when we focus on just how far God has gone to reconcile us back to himself, then we will go and reconcile to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But as soon as we forget and think that we're Christians and we're saved because we're smart and because we earned it and because we're good enough, We'll look around and start expecting everybody else to be smarter and to earn it and to be good enough. We have to remember that God is our accuser and rightfully so, but he's also our judge. He's also our counsel. He became the accused in our place. He's taken our verdict. He has paid our fine. He has declared us innocent and he has reconciled us to God. The only one who kept this standard perfectly was tried and accused for all the ways that we could not keep the standard. The only one who perfectly kept the law, the perfect law keeper was treated like a law breaker so that law breakers could be treated like law keepers. That's the gospel. And we were, when we remember that, then we will be quick. To, when we remember how quick God was to reconcile us back to himself, we will be quick to reconcile with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This anger, this wrath um, is described all throughout the Bible as a cup, um, the cup of God's wrath that Israel had to drink often, that other nations had to drink. Um, it's in Jeremiah 25, 49, Isaiah 51, Psalm 75. It, this, this wrath is always described as a cup. And what's interesting, and this is no accident, this was completely intentional, that the night before Jesus would be betrayed, and handed over and falsely accused and tried and condemned and to take the cross in our place, he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. 
What cup do you think he was talking about? He was talking about God's wrath, God's anger and hatred towards sin. Jesus was, it was God's will that Jesus would drink it. And Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way than for me to experience the full wrath, your full wrath towards sin. But then he says what? Not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus goes and takes the full wrath of God in our place towards all of our sin as our substitute, falsely accused, tried and condemned. When we remember that, we will go and reconcile with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to play the Holy Spirit this morning. I know this message can land in a lot of places, but maybe it means you stop waiting for your spouse to start the conversation. Maybe it means parents, as hard as it might be, to swallow some pride and to apologize to your children or to your teenagers. Teenagers in the room, it most likely means apologizing for the way that you've probably disrespected or not be fully honest with your parents. The tone you used, the rolling eyes, whatever it is. Like I said, I'm not the Holy Spirit. He probably has already prompted someone on your heart. But I wanna give you a minute as we close to think about and reflect on who you might need to talk to in light of this text. Um, Before we respond and worship, before Tyler and the team lead us as we close, um, just take a minute and pray and reflect and ask the Lord, if you can't think of anybody, to bring someone to your mind. Um, As far as it depends on you, that you would do what you need to do um, to live at peace with people made in the image of God. That's the substance, that you would love God with your heart and you would love the people that he's made. That's the standard, that's the substance, that's the right interpretation of the law. It was what the law was always intended to do, to create a love for God and a love for people. Take a minute, pray, and then the team will lead us. But reflect and do whatever you need to do um, in light of this text. Lord, be with us as we reflect. Thank you for your grace. God, we all fall short of this standard. I won't make it till tomorrow before I need to have another conversation with someone. So God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for all the ways I fall short. God, you bore the wrath. You drank the cup for me. So God, help me to be quick to reconcile with my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name.